Dotnet Rocks episode 774 with guest Stephen Bolin. Recorded live Thursday, May 17th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl, it's Richard, it's good. It's good. It is .NET, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Still enjoying .NET. Yeah. After all these years. And that is the name of the show. It is the name of the show, and, uh, and I got a great comment for you, too, in, right in that space. B- give you a big smile. All right, go ahead. I got to remind people, too, that, uh, you know, we our mantra from the beginning of the show was, it's not all .NET, it's things that are interesting to .NET developers, right? Absolutely. So, that's why we have geek out shows, because we're geeks. Yeah, and it, what was it last week we did the show on uh, nuclear power? We did, yeah. It's fabulous. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, it, uh, once a month we get to totally geek out on something, and that was certainly a subject that's been hot for a while. Guess what? I got something amazing to tell you in Better Know Framework. Oh, hit me with the music. <laughs> what do you got? What do you, if you like that music, Steven? That was, uh, that, was, that was really awesome. That was a song by John Cage. <laughs> for, for, what, for what it's worth, I know there's lots of criticism about, about the music. I actually kind of like that intro. I mean, well, it, I think it, everybody does. I think it's the, most of the criticism comes from me because I think it's weird. But <laughs> It is weird, but I enjoy it. <laughs> well, anyway. So, if you go to tinyurl.com slash androidcs, you will see an announcement from Xamarin that Android has been ported to C Sharp. Isn't that awesome? Isn't this crazy? That is crazy awesome. Android for a C-sharp version of Android. Yep. Let's, let's just think about that for a minute. Yeah, just think about that for a second. <laughs> yeah. Okay, my head hurts. Stop thinking about it. That hurts. Go to this blog post and check out what they did and how the performance stacks up and all of that kind of stuff. So when you go to this blog, you'll, you know, you, they talk about performance. And one of the things they say is once you have Android running on Mono, the obvious question is how does Mono perform compared to Dalvik, which is Google's implementation of the JVM? And it turns out really, really good, really fast. So they did. Which is uh, interesting. You, know, like you, you wouldn't need to, it's an abstraction on an abstraction. It, it's crazy. So if you look at the, the benchmarks that they did, it's just night and day. It's quite dramatic, actually. So, you want to check it out? I think what they've done is they've made Zobot OS, which is X-O-B-O-T-O-S, uh, available on GitHub so you can try it out. Just check it out. Tell us what you think. Miguel and the boys are causing trouble, and we will have a show on this. Oh, yeah. Over on the Tablet Show real soon. Yeah. TheTabletShow.com. Richard, who's talking to us? grabbed a comment off of show 764 which is a show we did with ted neward and uh he was he you know you remember ted he was oh, yeah. kind of a grumpy old man that day he was grumpy he was grumpy <laughs> he, he was, was making ca- fun of cantankerous uh, wait but uh there are some comments here that sort of address that uh, that i appreciate one's from ido ran who says uh hi i agree with ted that we are getting smaller numbers of features with every release but the quality keeps getting higher 
as more and more stuff is being added to the language, the tooling around it is getting harder and harder to keep up. Async await attacks a hard and long overdue problem of being able to write concurrent code easily, and they chose an interesting way of changing the compiler and not the language, which again is able to keep quality high. Also, async awake has a library called Dataflow, which allows you to build asynchronous applications in a more declarative way, which was influenced by the CCR library. Do you remember the CCR? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. the Robotics Studio Library. And I've been after those guys to get them on the show again because they're doing wicked cool stuff. Yeah, they, they had the right idea. Yeah. Anyway, I enjoy listening to the wise words of a professional with some perspective about development. I hope we can learn something, at least keep away from some of the mistakes that have been happened in the past. Keep up the good work. And thanks for the show, Ido. I agree, Ido. Absolutely. You know, the, the async await looks like a trivial feature, but it really isn't. There's a lot going on under the hood to just make parallelism work, right? Asynchronous really do what it's supposed to do. So I'm excited about it. It's the, one of the first things I've seen that makes a lot of sense. The real question will see be what the next evolution of this is. And I've been after right. Stephen Taub to come and talk to us about that as well, yep. because these are all really key topics. Good stuff. So thanks for your comment. And uh, .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NETrocks.com. And before we introduce Stephen, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have over 250 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts. They release 12 to 15 new courses every month and offer a free 10-day trial, giving you 200 minutes of access to their library. Pluralsight offers a wide range of developer training courses, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, and pretty much anything you can think of on the Microsoft stack. Try Pluralsight today. Subscriptions start at just $29 a month. And with that, let me introduce our guest. Stephen Bolin is currently a senior software engineer for the Spring Source division of VMware, where he is the technical lead and community evangelist for the Spring.net framework. Stephen brings his varied nearly two decades of experience in software and technology to the design and delivery of software engineering solutions and frameworks for other software engineers. In addition to his work on Spring.net, Stephen is also an active contributor to several other .NET open source software projects, including nHibernate, NDBUnit, and others. There's a lot more I could say about him, but let's just talk to him ourselves. Welcome, Stephen. Thanks, guys. Glad to be here. We uh, we started talking about Spring.net um, years ago, uh, and you know the .NET developers who don't do any Java wouldn't know about Spring. But um, tell us about Spring in the Java space, and then how Spring.net uh, works. Sure, I'd be glad to. So, so Spring in the Java space um, started out as an outgrowth of a book which was written back in 2002 by Rod Johnson, uh, where he talked about some of the problems with the sort of approach of enterprise Java beans and, and other kinds of things that were happening in the Java space and sort of proposed an alternative approach to um, building frameworks for ultimately delivering enterprise applications in Java. Um, and out of that book came uh, sort of almost, a, in a sense, kind of like sample code, um, came the Spring framework and grew out of that book and some of the, the concepts that were laid out in that, in that book all those years ago. So in the Java space, um, Spring has been... Uh, fairly successful. In fact, I would say very, very successful. Yeah. Um, at uh, you know, and certainly in terms of adoption, 
as well as offering sort of an alternative way to look at, at building things in Java as opposed to what was being pushed by sort of the large commercial vendors in the Java space at the time. Uh, and so the Spring framework in, in, in both the Java side and the .NET side is, is ultimately, uh, I think the easiest way to think of it is a, at its core, uh, it's an inversion of control container. Uh, so for those of you that are familiar with dependency injection and IOC, the core engine that drives most of the framework uh, is this capability to do inversion of control and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, also, along with that comes an awful lot of aspect-oriented programming-related stuff. Uh, in the Java space, that, that's done in a variety of ways. There's obviously things like aspect-j and so on in the Java space that there's not really an allegory for in the .NET space. Uh, but what we end up with is, is at its core, this engine, which is, is sort of the inversion of control container plus some aspect-oriented stuff thrown in. Uh, and then built around that, is a whole series of infrastructure and related framework capabilities that ultimately provide a whole series of services that the typical enterprise developer building large-scale complex enterprise applications would ultimately find themselves needing to build by hand themselves mm. if they were to just sort of, you know, take Java out of the box and get started, for example. And the same thing is true on the .NET side. Um, in, in the Spring Framework for .NET, what we do is we basically take a lot of the same concepts that are present in the Spring Framework for Java, um, give them a sort of more appropriate .NET twist uh, and and ultimately provide, again, that same kind of infrastructure that the typical enterprise software developer would be looking for. Um, that's everything from, you know, transaction management. It's things like validation infrastructure and these kinds of things, caching, um, all of these kinds of things, which are ultimately the sort of elements that you would end up adding into your, uh, adding into your enterprise application were you to, again, build it from scratch by just sort of building directly on top of the base class library in .NET if you were just to take that out of the box and go. Is there anything .NET specific in Spring.NET that isn't in Spring? Yes, there absolutely is. I think the easiest way to think of this is sort of a Venn diagram where there's one circle that, that's the Spring framework for .NET and another circle that's the Spring framework for Java. And those two circles do have some overlap, but they also have some things that, that are unique to each other. So several things in the Java space don't have an allegory in the .NET side, and several things in the .NET side don't have an allegory in the Java space. So as an example, um, the, the simplest example of this is probably the on the .NET side, uh, we do dependency injection into your ASP.NET web controls, for mm -hmm. example. Um, there's obviously no allegory for that really directly on, on the Java side. So right. that's something that is, is unique only to the Spring Framework for .NET. In addition to that, um, we also do lots of things that are, are done with WCF host services and those kinds of things, which, again, don't really have a direct allegory on the Java side. Okay. That's cool. So um, were you, what was your role in Spring.net in terms of uh, you know, what, you, what you did and what you worked on it? Well, so right now, um, I am the I am both the chief evangelist as well as the technical lead for the project. So wow. that is that is essentially sort of a dual role where part of my responsibility is is getting out in front of software engineers and and discussing the capabilities of the framework and helping them understand how it can help them in their daily work and all the rest of that, which is mm -hmm. sort of the traditional evangelist style role. Uh, but the other half of that is uh, me writing actual production code, contributing it to the framework, uh, as well as organizing the contributions of others. So it's the traditional sort of open source cat herder problem yeah. of, of getting everybody into line and, and making sure everybody's marching towards the same goal and, and, you know, contributing to the degree they can, but also meeting commitments that they make and so on, which is obviously in, in what is in many ways a volunteer scenario, uh, difficult and challenging to do sometimes, of course. 
the thing that we know about differences between Java and .NET is a lot of these programming practices and best practices that we're talking about in .NET actually grew out of the Java space. And then, you know, you have N versions of, of things like N Hibernate and, you know, N this and N that. But uh, architecturally, are these languages uh, – well, let's talk about the languages first of all, but but, but what about the, the frameworks? Are these frameworks – um, susceptible to the same pitfalls architecturally that uh, that you know in each camp. I I think generally it, it's certainly the case that that the two the two universes Java and .NET probably have much more in common than they do different. Um, there are of course some very important distinctions both at a at a technical level and also sort of at a at a ecosystem community level as well. But but more often than not, I think that there's there's certainly more overlap there in terms of the the kinds of things that the the platforms offer, the the sorts of capabilities of the languages. Clearly, it's the case that 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 C sharp has evolved significantly mm-hmm. uh, over the last you know whatever it might be you know ten plus years, obviously. But I would say as recently as sort of .NET 2.0, there was more or less language parity between Java and, and C sharp. And what's happened since then is that. For a variety of reasons, we can you know go into and certainly you know have been discussed by folks and others of your shows. Uh, what's happened is the the evolution on the .NET platform has been in the form of additional features and capabilities to C Sharp. Right. On the Java side, most of that evolution has been in the creation and proliferation of additional languages based on the JVM, right. rather than in huge amounts of additional features and functionality showing up in Java. The, the, the sort of growth of capabilities in Java, the language itself, has been relatively slow over the past, you know, five, ten years. Is it just me that finds that hilarious? Yeah, why do you think that is? Well, I, I think I, I think it's for a couple of reasons. Um, I, I think one of the reasons is that um, in the .NET space, the idea of someone other than Microsoft creating a language for .NET is not impossible, and and some people have done it, and there are many many examples of them. But the idea of a language not produced by Microsoft gaining traction in the .NET stack mm. is probably not a very high chance of success. And and so I think that if you're going to sort of go that route in the .NET space, um, you're you're kind of you're pushing the boulder uphill, right? I mean the 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 energy is against you. Mm. Um, not formally against you, but just the you know the likelihood of success is low. On the Java side, I, I think because obviously there is a more sort of open source kind of meme at its core than there is in 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 the .NET stack. I think there's there's more openness and interest in those kinds of things. I also mm-hmm. think that that there's a big difference between the the way the way Java as a language is controlled through things like the Java community process and JSRs and, and the whole sort of formal, almost academic style submission of an idea and then committees vote on it and mm-hmm. ultimately it, it you know the language feature moves forward or it doesn't into implementation mm-hmm. is very different than what what a what a company like Microsoft can do where you know they can get the right decision makers in a room and you know somebody by virtue of the fact that they're more senior than someone else can overrule someone and say mm-hmm. we're just doing that go right? right and so it's much it's much easier i think to to affect change in your language when it's sort of an internal company driving that, right, versus versus sort of a community ecosystem. I think that's definitely one of the reasons. And what's the story with Java in terms of ownership? Um, Sun, does Sun still own the bits or did they open source it? I can't remember what the story is with that. Well, so, so what's happened is Oracle obviously purchased Sun 
And and through that, they have taken over sort of all the responsibility for Java that Sun used to have, which was kind of a um, because of the the structure that had been put in place for Java. That that's not entirely ownership. I mean, it might be legal ownership, but mm-hmm. there's a there's a public process around what happens to Java, and so that's representatives from other companies, you know, involved in committees and that sort of thing. It's almost like a it's almost like a standards body more than a language development group, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they vote on the standards and, and, and if the standard is approved, then that goes into implementation. But that, that role of, you know, that Sun used to play is obviously now played by Oracle by virtue of them having purchased uh, Sun through that process, uh, I guess, almost two years ago now. But it's Oracle. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think everybody knows what I mean when I say that. Yeah. I mean, we, generally speaking, in the computing world, there is a significant chunk of the of the community that looks fairly harshly on Microsoft. But doesn't pretty much everybody look harshly at Oracle? They're so not nice people. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I, I I think it's one of these things where um, even if you even if you take it on its face that you know Oracle is is evil and or more evil than Microsoft, which which may be you know debatable one way or the other, right? Um, but but even if you take it on its face, I I think it's sort of the kind of thing where Oracle has more to lose by sort of being the big Goliath wandering around bashing people over the head with the fact that they own Java, mm. then then they probably have to gain. I mean, I obviously can't get my head into to you know, Larry Ellison's business strategy by, by a long shot. But, but it seems to me that, that there's a, you know, there's a healthy humming along ecosystem there that, you know, making the wrong move and sort of playing the heavy would, would probably do more damage to, and, and, and ultimately, you know, I, I'm not sure the whole thought process behind Oracle acquiring sun, but certainly one of the crown jewels sun had to offer was Java. And so I think they, mm-hmm. I think they're, they're, they're generally treading probably more lightly in, in that area than, than they might, for example, around something like, you know, Oracle database licensing. <laughs> but what I find fascinating is if you look at everything that Oracle owns, they've got a comparable stack to Microsoft. They have an end-to-end solution. They've got their back-end services. They've got development tools. They've got libraries. I mean, they've got everything they need to really go toe-to-toe with Microsoft. And it doesn't feel like they have. I think that's, I, I think that's generally true. I mean, I, I would, I would agree with that, that they have, I mean, if you look at it on sort of a, you know, list all the bits, right? All the bits that make up the recipe required to build. Yeah, the checklist. You know, yeah, yeah. The, the checklist of requirements for enterprise software building blocks, right? They've, they've got, they've got the development stack. They've got the runtime in Java. Um, you know, the, probably the only thing, I mean, except for a couple minor things, right? I mean, the big missing item, of course, is they don't really have an OS. Um, although right. on the Java side, you know, most of the OSs tend to be Linux. And so having an OS is, is probably less important. Doesn't really mean anything. Area. I mean, Sun did have their own version of Unix, but who Absolutely. cares? Yeah, right. right. Uh, it, clearly. Yes, I- exactly. Right. So I, it, it's interesting that, that they don't, they don't seem to be formally at least challenging Microsoft in, in the same kind of way. I mean, I'm certain that, that there are, there are lots of cases where what happens is, you know, Oracle database is up against SQL Server database in, in requests for proposals and so on. And the the surrounding bits, you know, somebody leaning towards we like them because they have Java or we like Microsoft because they have .NET and so on probably does play a differentiator around the margins. Um, 
but you're right. I don't see them. I, I don't see them going head to head in the same kind of way. It, it's interesting that they don't. To me, and maybe I'm being a little flippant saying this, it's just, well, when you're a company that seems to fundamentally hate developers, it's kind of crazy to try and build a development community. <laughs> hey, should we talk about architecture before we... No, no! <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so, so uh, yeah, we could riff on, on Oracle for a long time. Uh, Richard's obviously got some animosity there. So, yeah, he's been... Not working, angry at all. He's working through that with his therapist, uh... But anyway, I, I, my therapist says I'm just deeply disappointed with Larry. Yeah. Well, I'm sure anyone who's sat through the two and a half hour install for an Oracle database um, probably shares some of that animosity. Oh, yeah. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who'd like to thank Microsoft MVPs and RDs for their hard work throughout the developer community. As an influencer in our industry, you deserve great tools and resources to use in your own development. Telerik is proud to offer all Microsoft MVPs and RDs a complimentary license of their Telerik Ultimate Collection plus a five-pack of Team Pulse. This means you get 16 of their developer tools and their Agile project management solution. All you need to do is fill out a short online form. Head to Telerik.com slash MVP register to claim your license today. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. So let's talk about uh, architecture 3.0. <laughs> what uh, you've you've got some ideas about this? Yeah, I, I I do. So so I used to years ago be a practicing building architect, uh, and and so when I have some experience in in building things, certainly, and and certainly some experience in a technical profession, my my degree and, and, and ultimately most of my initial career experience was, was in practicing architecture before I slowly moved over to software. Mm. And, and so, you know, some of the things that, some of the things that, that challenged me out of the gate as I, as I moved over to look at software engineering were that there's a, there's an awful lot of sort of surface correlation between what we do as architects building buildings and what we do as software engineers building software. And, a lot of that is, I think, reinforced by a tremendous amount of commonality of terminology. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, we even say building software, right? I mean, now and then we say writing software, but ultimately, what we really mean is building software. Uh, and mm -hmm. and we talk about we talk about you know building software in in you know sort of layers, the same way we might build a building. We talk about you know building foundation and then building on top of that, and you know that whole process. Is very very similar. Um, even the idea that 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 software engineers are engineers, uh, and and obviously in architecture we deal with structural engineers and electrical engineers, mechanical engineers, these folks. Uh, so so there's an awful lot of parity there. Even so much so, I think that that ultimately, initially at least early on in software engineering, I think that that all of that borrowing of terminology probably did software engineering as a discipline sort of a tremendous disservice. Right. I, I think on some level, there's a benefit to that, because as you're starting sort of a new profession like software engineering, you, you sort of need some words to describe what you're doing. Yeah. And and, sure. and right. And, and you could sit in a room, you know, 10 really smart people and invent a whole new language with whole new terminology. Um, or you could do what was done, which was to sort of borrow from what seemed to be a similar profession. Um, a lot of terms. And for that matter, a lot of process. 
Because what ends up happening, I think, when you, when you borrow terms from somewhere else is that those terms carry with them an awful lot of sort of implicit connotations. And some of those connotations are helpful. And some of those connotations are harmful. So when, when we bring, I think, a lot of terminology from the building professions over to software engineering, it inherently meant, initially at least, that we also brought a tremendous amount of that process, right? And this, I think, is, is to a large degree where a lot of the sort of preponderance of waterfall came from mm. in software engineering. Because when you're building a building, right, you have to think everything through. Right. Yeah. And there, there's code to comply to, you right? Can't, there's rules. You can't refactor a skyscraper very easily. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you certainly can't, right? And, and, and the, the idea that, you know, oops, we poured the concrete in the wrong place, you know, gets to be a real expensive thing to fix. Right. Um, and, and so I, I think when software engineering borrows a lot of these terms from, from building engineering, um, we also borrow a lot of the process. And, and that's one of the reasons why when, when I moved over from architecture to, to building software, um, I thought, oh, this is easy. I, I, I got this one. Um, I, you know, I've been, I've been managing successful building projects for years. Um, surely I can use the same process and methodology and technique to manage successful software projects. Um, you know, the words are the same. The process is the same. We got, you know, we got a bunch of requirements. We got a bunch of budget. We get a bunch of schedule. All we have to do is deliver the requirements within the schedule, within the budget, success, right? Right. Um, and, and it turns out, of course, that the reason I thought that is because initially, at a very sort of high surface level, it appears a very similar process. But, but it turns out, from my own experience in, in building real software projects, that there are, in fact, deep distinctions between building a building and, and building software. And, and certainly one of them, right, is, is you sort of hit on when you say you can't refactor the skyscraper. Um, you, you really can't. But it's also the case that when we're building a building, one of the things that, that's probably the case is that there's more similar between that building and the last building we built than this next piece of software and the last piece of software we built. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so there's, there's a commonality there, right? I mean, certainly no two buildings hopefully look alike. Um, but, but at the end of the day, what we realize in, in building buildings is that the primary factors about how that building gets built don't really change from one building to the next, right? It, it's, it's very important that, you know, probably the primary thing we're fighting is gravity in every building. Yeah. Every building, right? There's almost probably no building on Earth where, at least on Earth, right, where gravity is not the primary factor we're fighting. Um, and then additionally, we get to things like, you know, waterproof and warmth and life safety and the rest of these kinds of things in our buildings. But, but at the end of the day, every building starts from the premise or very nearly every building does that gravity is the primary thing we need to be worried about. Yep. In software, it doesn't work that way, right? Lots of software is built where the primary thing is get it done as fast as possible everything else be damned, right? Other software is built with get it done as cheaply as possible, everything else be damned, right? And those are, are two wildly different sort of focuses that are going to result in wildly different processes and, for that matter, of course, wildly different results. If both of them at the end produce what was asked for in the way it was asked for, then they're both very successful. But those two pieces of software look and act and behave and were written very, very differently than each other, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. There's so much more known about what you expect from a building than what you expect from a piece of software. Right. And, and, and that's why what I often do is I look back to when I was practicing architecture and I say, it actually turns out that the thing about architecture that was most like building software was actually all the part of architecture before we ever build the building. Right. It's the requirements gathering. It's the needs analysis. It's the understanding of the budget. It's the discovery of what the client wants, right? That goes into that whole process as we're, you know, refining things, you know, nowadays, of course, in, in, in computer aided design platforms, but, you know, years ago on paper and blueprints and those kinds of things. And, and that process where we're constantly refining what in essence is sort of, you know, obviously a floor plan or a diagram of the building we're eventually going to build is really the part that is most like software. The, the building part is sort of where we hit the compile button and just sort of stand back and 22 and a half seconds later, we get the software built. If only we could build buildings like that. Yeah, right. What are the factors that change the role of the architect over time? In, in software? Yeah, yeah, in software. Yeah, so, so what's interesting is um, one of the things that was fascinating to me in moving over to software engineering is that um, there is this sort of intense, innate hatred between software engineers and people who call themselves software architects, hmm. which is actually not dissimilar from the exact same thing that goes on in the building profession. Yes. Um, electrical engineers think architects don't know what they're talking about. Structural engineers think architects don't know what they're talking about. Mechanical engineers think architects don't know what they're talking about and so on and so forth. Musicians right? think architects don't know what they're talking about. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, what, what's, what's interesting to me is, is that I, I think there's, th there's a fascinating commonality of experience here, right? So, so one of the reasons that in the building profession, architects are, are you know, it, like, for example, right, when I was an architect walking onto a construction site, all of the building contractors saw me coming and said, oh, great, here comes the architect. What do we need him for? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Now, of course, it, the only reason they're even building a building is because they've got the plans in front of them that, that we produced. So, but, but, you know, we don't need him. We got his plans. We're good. Right. And so when you, when you started out, you began with the premise, I have zero credibility here. And in fact, negative credibility, because oftentimes what I was, you know, what, what you would say would be discounted, right? Not even not listened to, but actually actively played against. And so you had to build up credibility in, in working with contractors and working with engineers and so on. until so they realized, you know, yes, you do know what you're talking about. And yes, there actually is value for you in this process, right? And I think the same thing is true when we look at software architecture. Um, part of the role of building architects is sort of the aesthetics part. Right. And so oftentimes, you know, if you grabbed a structural engineer off the shelf and a mechanical engineer off the shelf and electrical engineer off the shelf and said, here, build a building, it might very well be functional. But arguably, without the architect, it probably wouldn't have wonderful aesthetics. Right. And so mm -hmm. the the visible impact of the architect in that process is that the building looks attractive. Um, however, the practical reality is, is that the the non visible impact of the architect in that process is that. The structural engineer doesn't design a beam that runs right through the mechanical engineer's cooling duct. And the electrical engineer doesn't put the electrical room in a place where there's not enough structure to support the transformer that goes in there. So what happens is, is you have all these very, very specific technical disciplines. And these people are very technically competent and capable. They are essentially paid to look at the trees. Yeah. 
right? The architect, in addition to worrying about the aesthetics, is also paid to look at the forest, right? In order to make sure that, that in the end, what we don't end up with is a perfect structural design and a perfect mechanical design and a perfect electrical design, none of which can work together at all to produce a good building, right? And in the software world, I think the same kind of thing happens there. I think that done right, I think that software architecture, and, and one of the problems we have is, again, right, here we go with, with borrowing terms from other industries, right? As soon as I say software architecture, I say solution architecture, I say enterprise architecture, I say all these kinds of things, you know, one of two things happens. One thing that happens is you bring all the connotations from what you know about architects building buildings, and, and you lump that onto the title. And the other one is, is you immediately say, all those roles are pointless. We don't need those people because they're not technical enough to know what the heck is going on. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I think that, that both of those are obviously problematic because I have done a fair amount of work as a, you know, and again, terminology will vary from place to place, right? Solution architect, software architect, enterprise architect, whatever you want to call it. Um, those roles done right are essential. Because, and it doesn't need to be someone with that title, right? It doesn't need to be a whole separate person. It could just as easily be, you know, somebody who's also writing code. It could just as easily be someone who is, you know, also has the title software engineer, right, on their business card. Uh, but, but somebody's got to be looking at the forest rather than everybody narrowly looking at the trees mm-hmm. in order to have a successful project. And in my mind, that aspect, not not so much architecture from the aesthetic sense, because that's not really got so much of a great allegory, I think, in the software world. I mean, even when we talk about, you know, pleasant looking user interfaces and so on, that's not really the job of the architect. Now we're talking about graphic designers and right. so on for the right. most part. Um, but but the, the role of the architect that is applicable in software, I do think, is that whole idea of holistically looking at the solution. We need people who are able to look very detailed and know the technical stuff at the lower level, but someone's got to be watching out for the whole of the thing yeah. to make sure that the, the end in the end, we don't end up with, you know, perfectly designed, you know, third normal form database mm-hmm. that can't talk to the back end services that isn't paying attention to this other thing we need to interact with right. uh, that ultimately doesn't meet the customer's needs. Steven, I'd like to ask you to hang on for a second because it's time for Richard. Guess what time it is? That happy time again. It's time for that happy time. Time that we give away a Telerik Ultimate Collection to a lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Today's winner. Who's our winner today? Today's winner is Keith Maddox. Congratulations, Keith. Golf clap for you. So if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com and click on the big Get Free Stuff link, the big picture up in the upper right-hand corner of the website. It's free, and all you got to do is sign up, and uh, you could win. Every year, we're going to give away $5,000 worth of hand-picked geeky goodness technology. And twice a week, we give away great stuff from companies like Telerik, Pluralsight, even tickets to conferences. Absolutely. So you don't want to miss out on it. Uh, Stephen, you know what? I feel like I need to take a little step back because we just sort of dived into this idea of software engineers. And there's a non-trivial chunk of the community that does not believe in engineering. They think that that job is craftsmanship rather than engineers right and 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 so i i have a i have a unique sort of point of view on this because i i I do come from you know a very heavily you know field of engineering obviously in in the architecture Mm -hmm. world so 
So I think that there are definitely aspects of what we do in building software that you could sort of classify as engineering. I think for engineering to work, I mean, if, if you go back and sort of look at the, the definition of engineering, right, it, it, it tends to be about reproducible results. It tends to be about codifying a process. It tends to be about um, evolving a set of rules, a set of best practices, a set of repeatable successes. But that, that all feels like waterfall CMMI terminology. There's a big group of folks out there that call software art. Right. So, so I do think that there is definitely a artistic craftsmanship creative part to software that, that is well outside the bounds of what most of us would think of as engineering. We get, I think, with software, a, a, much, a much clearer blank slate to start with than most other kinds of engineering practices. And so I mm-hmm. do think that the level at which creativity comes into play and the level at which, more importantly, I guess, creative problem solving comes into play is much greater in building software than it is in building lots of other kinds of things that involve engineering. Well, and we do talk about elegance in software. Right. You know, that there is a finesse to it. The same way, you know, I, I do tend to equate software building to like building a bridge. First, get the cars across the river without it falling over. <laughs> Next, it should look nice. There's no reason not to make a good looking bridge. And I think it's to feel the same way about software. You can just make it work, but there's an elegance to well-crafted software too. Right. And, and I suppose it, that's true in the sense that, that, you know, functionality first and, and aesthetic later, right? Um, if, if it doesn't work at all, the fact that it's pretty is not helpful. Uh, if it does right. work, the fact that it's pretty may be a differentiator, right? And I don't mean to denigrate pretty in that sense, right? But the fact that it has an aesthetic sense to it and is appealing aesthetically to us uh, is important. And, and the interesting thing is that I, I think, though, that, that when most people talk about craftsmanship in software, they are less talking about sort of the visible aesthetic in the sense that, you know, the user interface is pleasant or it's got a good mm-hmm. user experience. I think they are more speaking about an aesthetic to the design of the code itself. Yeah, the, the aesthetic to the developer that, it, you know, when we talk about an elegant API, we're talking about something that another developer could pick up and go, oh, I see what you meant here. Yeah. I get this. I can do what I need to do with this. And then there's the whole thing that just because the code is elegant doesn't mean the end product is elegant to the user. Right. I think that ultimately there is a blend here, right? I don't think that either the this is hardcore engineering camp is right, and I don't think this is entirely creative craftsmanship camp is is right either. I think I think what you have there is you have these sort of polar extremes that are playing off each other and neither likes how far either side has pulled what they believe to be the truth of creating software. Mm. And so right. they, they they sort of stake out their polar opposite positions and and argue from points of extremes. Mm-hmm. Um I, I think the truth is is somewhere somewhere in between and arguably I think that it's not even a point in between, which is to say, I can't even tell you where it is. I might be able to tell you where for this project it reasonably ought to be drawn, right? So it's almost a spectrum between these two extremes. I think that if you, if you just make it work, but it's inelegant. And by that, we sort of tend to mean, you know, in the case of like, you know, an elegant API, right? What we mean is it's, it's awkward and counterintuitive to interact with. Yes, I can make it work. I mean, in the sense that the functionality I need is there, but but interacting with it just gives me this feeling of like, ugh, you know, awful. Um, versus, 
you know, it might be, you know, and we, we've seen sort of these things in the in the explosion of sort of fluent APIs and so on recently in, in the .NET space over the last probably three to four years, where we get these incredibly rich, arguably aesthetically elegant APIs that are just a bear to manipulate. Um, they, mm-hmm. they, they read right and they look, you know, pretty, right? They're aesthetically appealing. But you actually can't understand exactly what's going on there, and and getting anything meaningful done with them is just like arm wrestling with an octopus. Well, I look at at Avalon, which you know eventually evolved into WPF, as something absolutely elegant when you look at it as a whole. But when you actually sit down to build stuff in XAML, it's not simple. It's you know there's a lot to do being successful with it. I, I think some way Silverlight saved Avalon by just dumbing it down a bit so we could get our heads around it and get building. Yeah, I, I think there's a good argument to be made that that Silverlight ended up being sort of the you know the WPF on ramp for people um, in in, sure. in a way that it was never really I think intended to, but it just happened to be that way. Yeah, I remember Rocky Locke uh, really crystallized it for me when he said, the reason Silverlight's succeeding where WPF is failing is because web developers are used to lousy tools. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> I can yeah. see that point. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, have you, I, I mean, granted, 2010's better, but I've you still can't get a WPF designer that's just plain as solid as with the WinForms designer. Yeah, that's true. After all these years. I mean, it is interesting. And yet, we know the underlying infrastructure beneath WPF is this really well-thought-out, elegant architecture. Right. I, I think I, I think to some degree, when we start talking about aesthetics of APIs and so on, what we really mean is, because in, in a sense, it's not aesthetic from the artistic visual point of view. It's, it's aesthetic from the, are there cues sufficient to get me through using this? Right. So yeah, it's a functional aesthetic in the sense that, okay, I'm here. How do I get from here to there? Oh, of course, here's something that sort of helps me along that way. And so I think it's a falling into the pit of success thing versus a falling into the mm-hmm. pit of failure thing. How, how hard is it for me to get my work done? And I think the aesthetic we're talking about from a functional aesthetic is, you know, you walk up to a, you know, a pair of scissors, for example, there are visual cues about which end of the scissors you're supposed to grab. <laughs> Right. Yeah. It's not it's not so much you say, oh, look, my fingers fit through these rings on the scissor. It's you look at that and go, this end is soft. This end is curvy. Mm-hmm. This end is really sharp and dangerous looking. So I ought not to pick yeah. it up by that end. And it's that kind of functional aesthetic that gives you, I think, the visual cues to how you use it that are the important element, I, I think, of of sort of the the aesthetic that a lot of these people are talking about when they speak about an aesthetic and code. So, Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago I used Farpoint Spread, but now, of course, it's Grape City Power Tools Spread. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.NET and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.NET from Grape City Power Tools. Smarter components for smarter developers. One of the 
questions that we never got to. You were, we were talking about the role of the architect, but what are some of the things in technology that changes that role? Like maybe it's not technology. Maybe it's, uh, you, you know, some, some just maybe it's policy or something, but what are the, what are the things that change the role if the role changes at all over time? Well, I think, I think some of what, some of what does it is, is a change in process, right? So part of the reason why people, you know, tend to immediately discount the idea of, of software architecture is, is because in the beginning, what that person did was sort of, you know, whiteboardy, Visio based, no code, mm-hmm. you know, ivory tower sort of architecture approach where the, you know, they would hand down rules and regulations and designs that nobody stood a chance of ever implementing in the real world. And so I, I think that, that as, as agile has sort of come into its fore and, and become more broadly applied. And, and by this, I sort of mean, you know, small a agile rather than any sure. kind of specific prescriptive agile per se. But, but as that has sort of moved more, more prominently into most software, many software engineering practices, what you're seeing is that the, the role of the architect as imagine it all in my head long before anybody writes a line of code is hopefully going by the wayside because i mean there are certainly some projects that need that level of of upfront design but the majority of them i think practices told us don't benefit from it so i I think ultimately you're seeing less and less of that kind of architect unfortunately what you're seeing is those positions are simply being abolished and the the role of the architect is not being filled anywhere else i think that in a in a sort of agile, fast-moving team where where things are intentionally planned to be fluid and in a fairly decent high state of flux through the life of the project, there the role of that architect, and and again, it doesn't need to be a you know a person whose only job is architect, right? But I think the role of that architect needs to be um, paying attention to the the holistic sum of its parts, right? Not not having crafted a very fine series of parts that don't work well together, but making sure that they all do. And that I think is, is sort of what software architecture comes down to is making sure that in the end, we do get something where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Otherwise we just get a lot of parts. You think without a, um, uh, an architect with a capital a on a project that most of that falls into the lap of the manager. Um, it, it can, I mean, to some degree, it depends, I guess, a little bit on how your project is staffed. Many teams will have sort of a, someone in, in, you know, perhaps a technical lead role, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever the title is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and usually it, it, it more often than not, if there's not someone, if the project's not of sufficient scope, scale, size, whatever to warrant someone being just the architect, oftentimes it's that technical lead whose job it is to make sure that everybody is, is sort of working towards a, a, a hole that works. I've been, um, my experience has been Stephen, that the, the guy with the biggest technical chops is the guy who's tackling the hardest problem. And he's down in the details and hardly able to zoom out. Well, this, yes, that, that, that is one of the problems, right? Is, is that, that, that position of technical lead is busy with a whole slew of other responsibilities. Mm. Um, and, and so, by and large, this is the kind of thing, unfortunately, that I think leads to people being promoted from, you know, senior engineer to architect without any kind of idea that there's a whole different set of skills required for that. Yeah. It becomes a seniority thing rather than a skills thing. And, 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 you know, obviously seniority based promotions aren't generally successful. It's kind of the whole no, it's teacher punishment for being there longest. It's kind of the whole teacher problem, right? You know, why there aren't better teachers is because the really smart people are actually making money doing the hard stuff. 
Yeah, th- there's an element of that. There's definitely an element of that. I, I think that I, I think that on some level, what it comes down to is that in in the same sense that you know there are there are lots of people who are very good software engineers, and some of them are very good at algorithmic programming, and others aren't. Some of them are very good at object-oriented modeling, and others aren't. Right, and and we go on and on and on. Right, there's a there's a vast set of skills that goes into making someone a quote good software engineer, and and people excel at different ones of them. And I think it's a fallacy to say that because you you know you you excel at one, then you know it, it's easy to project that that you'll excel at another. And and so this idea of of turning you know whoever's got the most spare time into the architect, or whoever's got the most seniority, or whoever's very good at at you know transaction processing right what, whatever the skill is that, that seems most important in your organization that person you know gets promoted out of doing that job and becomes the architect which is is you know rarely a successful model to follow yeah not a good way to go about things and, and yeah i do think their companies and i look at microsoft as one that have clearly separate development stacks or you know sort of the the building stuff stack and the management stack they don't necessarily cross over Right. You could potentially have someone who, uh, you know, is in management, so to speak, be that architect. I would argue probably not unless they grew up through the technical channel in the first place and decided that their career wanted to lead them away from writing code all day long and, and wanted to lead them to managing people writing code all day long and move up the management track. Uh, now you just poked me nicely uh, in the Twitter muscle because Philip Lorano messaged me and said, I have a question. Is the phrase non-coding architect moronic or oxymoronic? <laughs> it's one or the other. <laughs> well, and, and, the, and the answer, I think, is that it, it's less about whether you are writing code and more about whether you could write code. And more importantly, how long it's been since you wrote code. Right. Because there's only decay, right? Right. That, that's absolutely right. And so speaking for myself, right, when I was in positions where I was doing software architecture and was not in a position, in, in many of those cases, I've been in positions where I've also been writing code for the company. But in several of those cases, I've been in positions where I was not. And in those cases where I was not, I made damn sure that I spent a fair chunk of my spare time doing things like contributing to open source projects, building things on the side keeping my technical chops up because, right, two things. First of all, I need to be hands-on enough with the technology that I can feel confident that what I'm architecting is even buildable, right? Is it reasonable? And secondly, there's that whole no one on the team will take me seriously, mm. right? Right. It, we, we are a, you know, as, as software engineering as a profession is, um, you know, a very chest thumping, ego driven, my code is better than yours kind of thing, right? Not, not so much in a male versus female sense, but just in a, um, I need to have respect for you as a software engineer. I need to have respect for the code you write. Otherwise, when you tell me to do something, it's just going to kind of roll off my back because I don't really trust that you have the, the technical capability to tell me what to do. Right. And so I've got to be in that kind of position where when I say, look, here's how I think we should do it. I can carry my half of that argument, yeah. right? It's not so much that it's an edict. It's that when someone comes back to me and says, no, that's not possible. I need to be able to say with a straight face, yes, it is. I just did it yesterday. Right. Right. Or I know it can because I saw someone else do it a week and a half ago. Right. I have to be able to do that. And that's why I think the the, the non-coding architect 
is is both a respect from the rest of the team thing, but it's more importantly a you know keep your chops solid, right? So that you you sound like you know, not you sound like you know what you're talking about, right? Of course, you do know what you're talking about when it comes time to making those choices. And of course, the real architect will never say that's not possible. They'll say, "Is that possible?" <laughs> <laughs> this is a little trick I learned from Richard, actually. You know, when 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 he <laughs> when he's skeptical of something, he'll ask you it, it to you as a question and let you come to your own conclusions because you may not. You know, you let's face it, nobody has all the answers all the time in this business because what was impossible yesterday could be possible today. That that's very true. That, so. That's very true. That's very true. Yeah, I, I, the line for possibility keeps moving. True. You know, the point is that I don't trust people that say that's not possible. <laughs> well, maybe that's a bad example, right? Is the possibility, non-possibility. Yeah, thing, yeah, but, yeah, sure. You know, this is the most efficient way. This is not the most efficient way. Right. We should do this because of this, you know, those kinds of things. So, Except in the case of the guy who wanted to uh, <laughs> jam in real time between San Francisco and Europe. And <laughs> I told him it wasn't possible, that's basically bumping up against the laws of physics. Yeah, we can't but, do much uh, about that even in software. Yeah. Yeah, speed of light. Tough to be pretty much a constant. Yeah, we're still stuck yeah. with that one, at least for the time being. Yeah, Steve, we're, we're sort of still at the new era as far as software development is concerned, and and you know we have this argument about engineering versus computing science and so forth. We don't have a real standards body. Do you do you think if we're really going to be engineers at some point there needs to be the association of software engineers? Do you see that happening? Um, you know, it's, it's an interesting quandary. Uh, obviously I come from, you know, having practiced architecture, a, a, you know, licensed regulated profession, right? I mean, that, that's an era where if I print a business card and I put the word architect on it and I'm not licensed, that's fraud, right? Yeah. In, in, in our business to be a software engineer requires that you print a business card with the word software engineer on it. That's it. Right. Um, so, so I, I do think that, that ultimately as the profession grows up, something like that's going to have to happen. For a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, be, because I think that that in order to, in order to ultimately be recognized as professionals for real, um, something you know we need something like that. However, right, one of the things that is a good part of that, right? People say, well, that's awful. You know, how will we license? What will the standards be, and so on, right? But if we look at something like architecture, for example, in addition to getting my license before I can even sit for the registration exam. I have to actually go through a structured intern program for a period of many, many years. And that's not just yeah. I have to work for three years and it can be the same, you know, the same one year of experience three years in a row. It needs to be I worked for three years and I did this and I did this and I did this and I did this. And existing architects have to sign off on that paperwork saying, yes, he did do this and he did do this and he did do this. And so if we could come up with that, right, if we come up with what that structure is, and what that license means, then ultimately I think that benefits the profession and it also benefits people entering the profession. One of the challenges with that, of course, is that because of the pace of change in our business, it would be really hard, obviously, to come up with technical level specs for what that license is, right? Which is to say, mm -hmm. you know, we can't even agree that all software should be object oriented. And I'm not saying it should, but I'm just saying, you know, we can't, for example, have a licensure that, that is all about inheritance hierarchies, because what if you're a functional programmer, right? That doesn't right. really work for you. Um, and as long as we're in an era where we can't even all agree about how we should test our software, um, and I just laugh the people out of the room who think we shouldn't test at all, but, but we can't agree on how we test, 
And, and if we can't as a profession agree even on something that fundamental, then coming to agreement on, on, on what a licensing body would look like, I think is challenging. But the one thing that I will say is, is, is going to happen. And, and it's going to happen because it's what happened in other professions is at some point, somebody who calls themselves a software engineer involved in writing software for life safety systems is going to make a mistake. And that mistake is going to kill some group of people or badly injure them. And there will be a hue and a cry and the industry will have lost its opportunity to regulate itself. I thought that the Y2K bug was going to be it. <laughs> well, see, I, I, I really kinda, did. Yeah. I'm, I thought I'm we're you. not going to yep. fix this in time. It's going to yep. be massive disruption. And this is when regulatory bodies are going to come down on us like a ton of bricks. Right. Hmm. And, and, and I, I thought for sure that something like that was going to happen. I've, I've since believed that what it's going to be is it's going to be a Martian lander style error, but there'll be people on board. Yeah. And, and, and it may not necessarily be an aircraft, right? But, but it'll be something like that. It'll be an elevator control system in a high rise, or it'll be. How do we know it hasn't already happened? Uh, it may very well have. It may very well have, right? I mean, I, I just think that, that when you look at other professions and, and the history of how they came to be licensed. Mm. Yeah, the Iron Ring events. Right, exactly. There, there were two primary motivators, right? One was people in the profession already wanting to prevent competition from entering their profession, mm. right? That, that's an internal force. And so you see that, for example, in, in, the, in the case of, of architecture today, right? The architecture licensing exam um, is graded on a curve. Before everybody takes it that year, the people who are already architects decide how many more architects they'll let into the profession that year. Right. So so there's that going on. But the second part of it is society reaches a point at which they decide that what you're doing when you practice your profession is so important that we can't not have standards for it. And and I think software is evolving to that point when we reach it is is probably up for grabs. Right. I can't predict the future. Yeah. But but I do think that's where we're headed. Yep. Very true. I, I tend to agree. Well, uh, I think we're just about out of time. So uh, I'd like to thank you, Stephen Boland, for sharing your knowledge with us. It's been a great conversation. The hour flew by. Great. Awesome. I had a great time. Thanks for inviting me, guys. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.